Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior associate pastor, Dr. John Light. We are looking at the book of Proverbs, and we've noted that the first nine chapters of the book have major sections that are united, and then in this large central section of the book, there are individual Proverbs that are seemingly mixed together in a somewhat random way, um, and they come back to us with different themes again and again and again. So if you Maybe you've read through the book of Proverbs one chapter a month, one chapter a day of the month, and you, you have reoccurring themes come to you almost every day. And this morning, we're looking at this theme of the sovereignty of God and the ways of man, considering this very important theme of the sovereignty of God found throughout Proverbs. The sovereignty of God means His ultimate control of all things down to the smallest details of life. Our bulletin today lists a number of Proverbs which have bearing on this truth. And I would like us to begin this morning by reading the Word of God, reading a few of these, not all of them. I'm beginning near the middle of that list if you're reading from the bulletin with Proverbs 16.9 and reading five or six of those. Hear the Word of God, Proverbs 16.9. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. 1633, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. 1921, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. 2012, the hearing ear and the seeing eye, the Lord has made them both. 2024, a man's steps are from the Lord. How then can man understand his way? 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. And finally, 21.30, no wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. May God add his blessing the reading and hearing of His Word. This morning, we want to look at God's sovereignty under three main points. The first is the Bible teaches sovereignty. The second, the sovereignty of God does not cancel human responsibility. And third, the sovereignty of God is a great comfort in the face of evil and suffering. The Bible teaches sovereignty. Sovereignty doesn't cancel human responsibility. And the sovereignty of God is a great comfort in the face of evil and suffering. So first of all, the Bible teaches God's sovereignty. Other portions of the Bible teach God's sovereignty in more extended ways. But here in Proverbs, we have these pithy, short statements of this teaching, like uh, bullet point expressions that lodge in our mind and bring the point home to us. Think just about a few of these that I have read. 1633, the lot is cast into the lap, 
but it's every decision is from the Lord. Now, if you know your Old Testament, you know that the lot was some kind of device that the high priest used or that others would use in guidance that the king would use. Uh, Maybe they were something like our modern dice, but had the feature of yes and no on them. Um, It was this religious device used by the priest under guidance from God to seek the will of God. And here we're told that the use of the lot was not something that was random or something that was by chance, but was determined by God, that God was sovereign over the lot cast into the lap as it was done. Or consider Proverbs 21.1, probably one of the most famous of all Proverbs, which speaks about the king. It says, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Now, the word for stream of water here in that verse is used to describe small irrigation channels that an ancient farmer in Israel would use to irrigate the crops and that he would use certain devices or gates and so forth to block the water and to send it a different way. And so he was in charge of the direction that the irrigation water would go. And so the proverb is saying here that the direction, the decision of any king, the king's heart, his decisions uh, are like this irrigation canal in the hand of God, and God directs it wherever he will. And as we read the Old Testament, we find a number of illustrations speaking and showing clearly that God controls the decisions and the hearts of pagan kings ungodly kings. For example, in Genesis 26, uh, we're told that God kept King Abimelech from touching Abraham's wife. When Abraham lied and said that Sarah was his sister and Abimelech took Sarah into his harem, God kept him from touching her. The king's heart is as like a watercourse, a stream of, of water in the hand of the Lord in that case. Or Ezra 6.22 says that the Lord turned the heart of a pagan king so that he aided the Israelites in their rebuilding temple. And we know that Cyrus, King Cyrus, is mentioned specifically as being God's instrument, this pagan king. Or think of Daniel chapter 4 a very famous text where mighty King Nebuchadnezzar is boasting about his power. And God humbles Nebuchadnezzar and takes away his reasoning so that he eats grass in the fields and the dew falls on him. His fingernails grow real long. And for this season of time, he is humbled. And then God finally restores Nebuchadnezzar's mind and his kingship. And Nebuchadnezzar declares this. This is a pagan king who's been through this. In Daniel 4, 37, he says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride he is able to humble. And we could give more illustration of Old Testament kings. Pharaoh comes to mind of how God turns their hearts And then in the New Testament, we think about what Jesus says to Pilate 
Governor Pilate during his trial, John 19, verses 10 and 11. So Pilate said to him, do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Uh, Pilate is saying, don't you know that I'm in charge here? And Jesus' response is this, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. And Pilate is stunned at Jesus' answer. Do you hear what Scripture is teaching about sovereignty, all authority, and all power of kings and rulers and presidents and governors? All is under the ultimate control of God. And the force of this Proverbs about the king's heart has wider implications. If, if that is true for the king's heart, the logic really is, go, is behind this. The idea is, who in the ancient world had more power to accomplish his purposes and his will than a king? Remember, there was no checks and balances. There was no Supreme Court ruling whether that was right, what the king did. There was no Congress or Senate, uh, you know, parts of government to check his power. There were, there were no elections every few years. No, the, the, the word of the king was supreme. And so if the king's heart was in the hand of God and God turned it wherever he will, then what can be said for God's control over anyone or anything lesser than a king, certainly that would be true as well. Now, this morning, we don't have time to cover all the ways that Scripture speaks of God's sovereignty and teaches us about it. But if you were to do a study, you would find that God is described as being sovereign, as being in control of all creation, over nature, over all natural disasters, over storms and earthquakes and disease, over life and death, over all suffering and evil, and over all evil spiritual powers and authorities, and amazingly, all with purposes for good, all according to His wise plan. It just makes our minds almost explode trying to believe that and understand that. I remember as a young believer having just come to faith in Christ and wrestling with this teaching of Scripture in my mind. And Proverbs twenty twelve, which we read, reminds me of a particular moment in my life. It says, The hearing ear and the seeing eye, the Lord has made them both. And it reminds me, I grew up struggling with the problem of stuttering. You know, I was in speech therapy for years and years. I couldn't really talk on the phone. And shortly after coming to faith in Christ, I was reading in Exodus chapter 4, where Moses says to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. And I thought at the time, maybe Moses stuttered. I'm not, we're not sure what Moses was talking about, but I like to personalize it for me. But the thing that really struck me after Moses gives that as an excuse was the Lord's reply. And it's like the proverb we've just read, but just in, in different words. Exodus 4:11. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind, is it not I, the Lord? That verse 
hit me like a ton of bricks. I was just thunderstruck by it that to, to begin to grasp that God was sovereign over this affliction that had plagued me for years. And my vision of God, as He is revealed in Scripture, began to be enlarged. This is the God who I trust in. Uh, this is the God of my salvation. This is how great He is. Can I trust Him with that part of my life? The Bible clearly teaches that God is a God of complete sovereign control over all things, from the smallest subatomic particle to the furthest galaxies we can locate. I remember R.C. Sproul writing that if there's one molecule in the universe that is not under God's sovereign control, then God doesn't control anything. From the decisions of kings to the casting of lots, all is under God's wise and loving and good control. Now, I know that for most of us, immediately we have questions about the problems of evil if we're encountering this doctrine for the first time and the issues of God's relationship to suffering. How can this be? And maybe especially with the issue of human beings and their motives and their actions and the damage that people do to one another. Maybe you are struggling today with questions about God when you think of the terrible attacks in Israel and now in the, the war in Gaza. Uh, or maybe personally you have been deeply hurt by someone and you str- struggle to know how the Bible speaks to that and how God is involved with that. And this brings us to our second point. The sovereignty of God does not cancel human responsibility, but it teaches that God is ultimately over all human sin, suffering, and evil. And it teaches that God promises to work all things for good for those who love Him. Look at Proverbs 19.21. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Interesting, isn't it? Scripture recognizes what we would call the free agency of human beings, that people think and make plans and make choices freely, and they're uncompelled in that way. And that is a good thing, but ultimately, it is the purpose of God that will stand. And this is a deep mystery. We, we cannot connect the dots to understand how God does this. Or Proverbs twenty-one thirty-one: the horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. So here with something like a battle, we see both the importance of planning and preparing, that's right, but the acknowledgement that the outcome is in God's hand. And we also see many Proverbs that speak about God answering prayer. So we know that prayer is somehow part of how God works, and it is bundled in with how God brings about His will in this mysterious way. Prayer is not useless. It is part of how God accomplishes His purposes and plans. But Proverbs also speaks about God judging the wicked and rewarding the righteous. So these statements tell us that God commands people to live according to the moral order that He has set and established for the world, to walk with love and justice and holiness before God, and no one can blame their sin on God. And along these lines, we should note that when God speaks of the righteous, God rewards the righteous. It is a phrase that is typically used to mean the believer. 
God rewards the believer, the person who has entrusted his life or her life to God in faith in the Messiah in the Old Testament, in the Messiah to come. In the, Old, in the New Testament, the, the Messiah has come, and we look back. It doesn't mean that the righteous person is without sin. No, but it's a person that's saved by grace through faith in the Messiah. All these various Proverbs speak to the reality of of human responsibility, and Proverbs has a lot to say about that. The fact that somehow God is able to give humans freedom to decide and act, and they are responsible for all their choices, and yet at the same time, amazingly, God is ultimately in control of all of this. It's a marvel. We just cannot understand how that can be, but we are not God. And so we are called to believe the Scripture that teaches this. The Westminster Confession writes about this and speaks about this relationship between God's sovereignty and human responsibility in chapter 3. I'm not going to read a long section to you, but uh, some of the main points it makes are these. Number one, God has ordained all things that come to pass. Number two, yet God is never the author of sin, James 1.13. God doesn't tempt us. He never tempts anyone with evil. No one can ever say, God made me sin. Yet number three, God never violates the will of the creature, the human being. In other words, people freely choose. They are not robots. And number four, even though God is sovereign, he works through all kinds of secondary causes. So God is sovereign. He's not the author of sin. He never violates someone's will. And he's ultimately in control, but he works through secondary causes. A good example of that is Satan coming before God at the beginning of the book of Job. And Satan comes to God somehow before the court of God and asks permission from God to bring great suffering into Job's life. And God allows it. But as we read the book, we see this isn't some kind of plan B or plan double Z for Job, uh, as if God has lost control of Job's life. No, God has purposes for Job, even with Satan's evil intent. And in the, the end of the book shows that, even though God never explains his purposes to Job. We could look at the passage in 2 Corinthians 12, 7, about Paul's thorn in the flesh, whatever it was. It could have been a problem with his eyes that he mentions in Galatians. It could have been some other health issue, some kind of thorn in the flesh. He says it was given to him from God to keep him from becoming conceited. But in the same sentence, he says that the thorn is a messenger of Satan to harass him. See how he says those both in the same sentence? It's so interesting. And both are true. The secondary cause, we might say, is Satan with evil intent, but the ultimate cause is God with good and wise intent for Paul. Or think of the famous statement of Joseph in Genesis 50, where Joseph is describing the malicious deeply hurtful motives and actions of his brothers who sold Joseph into slavery when he was a teenager. Think of it. They plotted against him. They saw him 
coming. They, they beat him up. They stripped him of his clothes. They threw him in a pit. They were going to kill him. They finally decided to sell, sell him as a slave. Think of being treated like that by your brothers. But years later, God, Joseph can say to his brothers, after the whole experience has come down after many years and God has used it to save his whole family from famine, Joseph can say, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. The Bible is, is just full of examples like this. But the most mind-bending passages in the Bible which speak about this mystery of God's wise control of all things are verses with, which speak about the cross of Jesus Christ. Listen to just two of them. On the day of Pentecost, when Peter preached in Acts chapter 2, verses 22 and 23, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. So Peter is saying, you know what Jesus did. You know what he was like. You know his compassion for the crowds. You know his miracles of healing and grace and kindness, all these things. This Jesus, and here's the part I want to highlight, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And foreknowledge means more than just knowing in advance. It meant the foreordaining. It was this definite plan. According to the definite plan of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Isn't it amazing? Peter can say this was the plan of God yet it was carried out by the hands of lawless men. Or later on in the book of Acts, chapter 4, in another speech, verses 27 and 28, he can say, For truly in this city, Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod, puppet king, Pontius Pilate, the governor, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do, now listen how he says it, whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Think of all the evil motives. Think of it. Here was the most hateful and aggravated crime in the history of the world, an alliance of everyone involved to put to death the sinless, loving, gracious Son of God. Scripture tells us that this awful, yet this saving death was planned by God before the foundation of the world. It was all part of God's plan. And yet when we read these passages, we see that it involved all kinds of secondary causes. We, we see that it involved sinful motives and actions of the Jewish leaders, the Gentile leaders, Herod, Pilate, the crowds who yelled, crucify him. The cross involved jealousy Hatred, envy, greed, self-interest, political scheming, incredible cruelty, all kinds of wrong things. Yet we're told absolutely clearly that this was all ordained by God out of his, his infinite love for those who were his enemies by his saving grace. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart all these hearts were a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Isn't the cross of Christ the most amazing fulfillment of Proverbs 
I hope it makes you see something of the beauty of what Jesus Christ did. Maybe you've grown up knowing something about Jesus Christ or, or knowing about Christmas and Easter and things like that, and you know about Jesus' wonderful teaching and example, but maybe you think about his death as some kind of sad ending. It's too bad it had to end like that, but at least we have his example. If you don't really know that much about what the Bible teaches about Jesus' death, then I hope that what we are seeing here almost startles you into awakening, uh, that it was God's good purpose for Jesus to die to atone for sin, that it was no accident that Jesus' death, even though it is the most horrible crime, is now for the believer the most blessed action of God that they could ever know that is so meaningful to those who trust in Him. Jesus laying down His life for His enemies who are lost in sin, and yet by that very cross, granting redemption. And through that redemption now, Jesus is extending His kingdom throughout the world more and more until He comes again in glory. And He does so by bringing people to trust in Him for salvation and for their lives to be forever changed by Jesus Christ. And so have you trusted in the death of Jesus Christ to pay for your sins and to bring you to God? You know, the cross of Christ is the hinge of history, and every person has to reckon with how they deal with the cross of Christ. And this brings us to our final point. The sovereignty of God is a great comfort in the face of evil and suffering. A great comfort in the face of evil. How does the truth of God's sovereignty help us as we look at our lives, as we face disappointment and adversity and death, and as we experience suffering and possibly awful tragedy, or as we look at a world with horrendous brokenness and we're almost despairing as we read the news? But there's nothing new under the sun in that sense. Proverbs 20, 24 says this, a man's steps are from the Lord. How then can a man understand his own way? What's it saying? A man's steps are from the Lord. How can a man understand his own way? In other words, it is good and right to make plans, but it is the Lord ultimately who guides each one of our lives according to His plans. And our lives are, are clearly not always what we plan them to be. Isn't that true? There are many unexpected twists and turns. No matter how rich we are or how much we plan and purpose and everything like that. So Proverbs 27.1 says, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. And so, because of God's sovereignty, we are humbled. But we are also, the Christian is greatly comforted by the gospel because in the gospel we learn that God's plan for those who trust in Him no matter how dark our lives might be, his plan is ultimately very, very good. He gives us himself in Christ throughout our lives. He gives us certainty of eternal life, and he gives us in this present life the wonderful promise, Romans 8.28, that all things work together for good for those who love him, to those who are all the called according to his purpose. Think with me just briefly about a New Testament passage which amplifies the Proverbs we've just read. In Matthew 10, 
28 to 31, Jesus is speaking, and he says, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. And then he uses this illustration to to talk about God's control. He says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Listen to what he says. And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. We just heard the beautiful hymn sung, His Eyes on the Sparrow. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Doesn't this remind you of the Proverbs about God? You know, the, the, the lot is cast into the lap, but its decision is from the Lord. Here Jesus is speaking of two sparrows, and, and sparrows were apparently so uh, inconsequential that it was like saying, buy one, get one free, you know, two pair of sparrows for a penny. It would be a great deal at the store. But Jesus is saying, not even a sparrow falling to the ground is overlooked by God. And he goes on to say that God even numbers <clears throat> the hairs on your head. That is, he knows us so well and cares for us so thoroughly that he is aware of, of one hair falling. And the co- context of this this declaration by Christ is that the context of people possibly killing you. Talk about an evil situation. Christians who might be killed for their faith, and we just stop and think, aren't the actions and intentions of other people one of the most difficult areas for all of us to trust the sovereignty of God? When we think about people hurting us, people letting us down, people betraying a friendship or a marriage or turning against us in some way, let alone trying to kill us. But it's in this very context that Jesus underlines the complete care and the governance of God over our lives. And He does so as a remedy for our fear, as a source of, of comfort. Fear not, therefore. You are of much more value than many sparrows. Do you hear the logic of what Jesus is saying? Nothing in our lives is just by chance. Every detail down to the last hair is ordered by God. Even the way that others sin against us, part of the purposes of God. Now, I know this teaching uh, is powerful, but it doesn't, it doesn't contradict the reality of genuine pain and great sorrow and doesn't minimize those things. The Bible is full of guidance about lament. It doesn't contradict the right aim of alleviating pain and sorrow in the world, but it shows us the way to comfort through the Word of God. And I would put it in these terms, not just to know the truth of God's sovereignty, but to have that truth touch your heart. The great American pastor and theologian Jonathan Edwards writes about coming to grips with the doctrine of God's sovereignty over all things as as a young man. And he talks about his struggle about that. He uses actually the word horrible at one point to talk about it, how it was difficult for him to come to grips with it. And then finally, one day as he had been studying Scripture and immersing immersing himself in the Word of God and prayer, this very doctrine of God's sovereignty became so sweet and beautiful to him that he could barely stand it for the joy that he felt in God and the overwhelming sense of praise to God. 
And that happened to him a number of times. It, it, he, he never struggled like that again. And later, Edwards would write much in his writings about the Christian meditating on God's Word and gaining what he would call a sense on the heart of God's truth. We might speak about it in terms of truth moving from our head, head to our hearts. And I believe this is a key of how we are to receive comfort from what we have been understanding about the sovereignty of God. As you read the Bible or as you hear the Bible preached and taught, be asking God to bring it to your mind and to your life in a way that you take the present experience of your lives, what you're going through, your heartaches, your sorrows, your circumstances, your unfulfilled longings, your dreams, that you bring these to God and meditate on His great goodness to you every day in Christ that you meditate, that He has saved you from your sin and judgment, that He promises that He's at work in every detail of your life, that His Word about sovereignty would strike you to your heart about that, that you would believe it, that Jesus is with you, He's your sympathetic high priest, that He is at work, that, that God promises that He is working, His purposes for good, even if you're never able to see those purposes in this present life. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Ask Him to apply these wonderful truths to your heart, a sense on the heart. And this type of conviction that we gain is not something that we receive once and for all and we're done with it. No, it's something that we grow in and take to heart again and again as we walk with God throughout our lives. And whatever sudden twist in the road or deep valley of pain we might go through, there are greater depths of knowing God and believing the Word of God about who He is, His sovereign goodness and love to us in Christ and His care for us. Margaret Clarkson wrote the words to the hymn, O Father, You Are Sovereign. We, we sang one verse of that hymn this morning in the Song of Praise. I learned a little more of her story from a local pastor who is now over a hundred years old and uh, he used to come here Sunday nights and always be an encouragement to us. And uh, he knew Margaret Clarkson years ago in Canada. And he told me one, one evening we sang that hymn, and he, to he told me a little bit that as a single uh, young person, Margaret Clarkson chose to teach in a mission school in a remote area of Canada, knowing that it might make it more likely that she would never marry and that turned out to be the result. And during that struggle and that time of seeking to serve God, not surprisingly, she struggled with never having a family of her own. And this pastor told me that the words of that powerful hymn that we sing uh, were part of the fruit of that struggle of Margaret to trust God with her life and her meditation on God's Word in the midst of her situation. And just to read the third verse of that hymn, O Father, You are sovereign, the Lord of human pain, transmuting earthly sorrow to gold of heavenly gain, all evil overruling as none but conqueror could. Your love pursues its purpose, our soul's eternal good." What a beautiful thing to think of Margaret Clarkson's meditation on the sovereignty of God in her life and finding comfort in that. And maybe you face some deep distress 
today. Meditating on God's sovereignty will certainly not remove all pain and sorrow, but it allows us to grow deeper in our peace and joy in God, and it can sustain us so that we do not sink into utter despair. We are upheld by the Holy Spirit, bringing the Word of God to us in our darkness and in our pain, and it brings glory to God even if no one else sees what God is doing in your life as we trust in Him in whatever situation He has placed us in. Maybe we need to meditate more on the sovereignty of God as we see things, terrible things unfolding in the world, and as we see evil seeming to advance on many fronts, or as we grow possibly discouraged by what's happening in our own nation and in government and in politics and in culture. But the Lord is on His throne. The Bible tells us that. And this is not an excuse for passivity. It's not an excuse for inaction. There is much to be done. There's a great commission to be fulfilled. But as you read the news, make sure that your heart, maybe your anger, your indignation, maybe your despair, make sure your heart is submitted to God and trusting His purposes and seeking Him first. And above all, finding comfort in the gospel of Jesus Christ, this very good news that this gospel that never could be, have been invented by any human being, we have such a great and loving Savior, one who bore all the injustice, all the hatred in order to bring us to God. Remember that the one who gave himself for you is also the one who lovingly orders every detail of your life for his glory and for your good. And so we can say, hallelujah, what a Savior. Hallelujah, what a friend. Saving, helping, keeping, loving. He is with me to the end. Amen. Father, thank you for the love of Jesus Christ, the powerful love of Jesus Christ, which overcomes all things, that triumphed in the cross, that overcame sin and death and hell and Satan and all his evil purposes. Thank you, Lord, that nothing can thwart your purposes and plans. And thank you that you are for us in Christ. And so we can say, if God is for us, who can be against us? In Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.